Hey there, folks. Norm here. This week, as part of our ongoing weekly relaunch prelaunch, we bring you a compilation of segments we've always done here on the Drabblecast called Drabble News. See, back in the early days when we started, we didn't limit the idea of strange stories to just fiction, because as the saying goes, sometimes the truth is even stranger. So we often included a feature called Drabble News, where fans would write in or post in our forums some really strange news story they'd come across or heard about that the Drabblecast would then pick up on and investigate. These investigations often took us down some pretty bizarre and unexpected rabbit holes. In other words, half the time I'd find myself rubbing my head, shaking off some weird fog mid-production on these news stories, only to find myself mostly done writing a musical about embryonic stem cells or hardcore rapping about some new species of dinosaur. So, since these norm-fugue-state-induced real-life weird news stories have been happening the past ten years, peppering various episodes in an unpredictable fashion, I figured we'd compile some of these ones that you listeners said in our forums and on social media that you thought were the best. Hope you enjoy. Also, here's some big news. You know the big Kickstarter to relaunch the Drabblecast that we've been talking about these past couple months and are all excited about launching soon? Next week, folks, Friday, September 7th, it begins. I'm so excited. We've got all sorts of awesome rewards and contests and cool shit in store for you. Be sure to go to our website, Drabblecast.org, and slap your email there where it says subscribe to our mailing list. You can then rest easily knowing that you, sir, Madam Cephalopod, are officially in the loop and won't miss out. Next week, Friday, September 7th, get ready. We're going to need your help spreading the word here. Follow us on social media at Drabblecast on Twitter and Instagram, the Drabblecast group on Facebook. Get hooked into that DC mailing list off our website. You won't miss out. And then you can fully support the full relaunch of your favorite podcast into endless glory. And you can also spread the word and blackmail or extort your friends. Or not. However you want to do it, really. I leave that in your discerning hands. For now, though... Enjoy the very best of 10 years of travel news. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. You know, it's not too late to cancel that summer trip to the beach. That is, unless you like being killed by giant jellyfish. We bring you travel news. Special thanks to listener Stalin Says for posting this in our forums. Researchers say that giant jellyfish are taking over parts of the world's oceans as overfishing and other human activities open windows of opportunity for them to prosper. Jellyfish are normally kept in check by fish, which eat small jellyfish, and compete with jellyfish food such as zooplankton. But with overfishing, jellyfish numbers are increasing. Experts believe that for the first time, water conditions are leading to what they call a jellyfish-stable state, in which jellyfish rule the oceans. The combination of overfishing and high levels of nutrients in the water has been linked to jellyfish blooms. One such jellyfish is called Nomura. It's the biggest jellyfish in the world. It can get 440 pounds, that's as big as a sumo wrestler, and get 6.5 feet in diameter. These huge creatures burst through fishing nets and destroy local fisheries with their ravenous taste for fish eggs and larvae. Mmm, larvae. How strange is it that these things that are taking over the oceans are almost completely made up of water themselves? 
There's just one percent, a thin, almost transparent layer of gelatinous goo that stands between our oceans being hijacked and ruined, and our oceans being pretty much just water again. Jellyfish stable state my ass. Listen here, jellyfish, if anyone's gonna ruin the oceans, you better believe it's gonna be us humans. We can't just sit around and let these greedy, sumo-sized jellyfish bastards control an ocean monopoly and squash species diversity and stifle marine creature capitalism. Clearly, the government needs to intervene with some sort of antitrust regulation. Before it's too late. Before nerdy, tech-savvy jellyfish start bundling Internet Explorer into Windows to create a software monopoly in the Intel-compatible jellyfish PC market. Before large, financed lending jellyfish merge to control and mismanage the secondary mortgage market, causing a jellyfish recession. And before frou-frou, slapdash, socially-minded, free-spending, tree-hugging, black-rimmed, glasses-sporting, Jack Kerouac-reading, organic soy latte-drinking, foreign independent film-watching, Birkenstocks with socks-wearing, jellyfish liberals gained control of all three branches of tripartisan jellyfish government. Or Republican jellyfish. It doesn't really matter. The point is, we need checks and balances. We need to develop and train giant mutant sea turtles. Who's with me? Write your congressman today. Tell him you're fed up with monster jellyfish and you want your tax dollars to fund giant mutant combat terrapin research. Suck it up, Chrysler. Well, some amazing progress in the war on monster jellyfish. And wait until you hear how our military is doing it. Joining me now, retired U.S. Navy Captain Chuck Nash. He's also a Fox News military contributor. Captain, good morning to you. Good morning, Megan. All right, so there are mutant sea turtles helping the U.S. military. And tell us what they're doing. Well, I have to be careful and dance around this a little bit because once upon a time I used to work classified programs in this area. Right, so, right. So we will stick uh, with reportedly for you. Right. So we'll stick with reported stuff. And it's feasible that you could take mutant sea turtles. You Very know what? Plausible. Now, when I picture this, I think, okay, if I'm a monster jellyfish and I see some mutant sea turtle run by, I'm going to think, wait, that's not good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to play an excerpt from an interview that Palin did with the CBS Evening News anchor Katie Couric, where she was asked about... Monster jellyfish. Listen to this. Why isn't it better, Governor Palin, to spend $700 billion helping middle-class families who are struggling with health care, housing, gas, and groceries? Allow them to spend more and put more money into the economy instead of helping these big financial monster jellyfish it's got to be all about mutant sea turtle creation so health care reform and reducing monster jellyfish has got to accompany tax relief for americans and we've got to see mutant sea turtles as opportunity not as uh, a competitive um scary thing Joining us now, the author of Godless, Ann Coulter. We had this Supreme Court decision today. Uh, your background is in constitutional law, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, because I think it's a dreadful decision. Um, yes, and I haven't read the decision. In fact, the idea of applying the Geneva Convention to 
um, to, to these monster jellyfish uh, who do, do not abide by the laws of war. Um, I saw, heard earlier in your panel someone defending the decision saying um, the president is subject to checks and balances even in the conduct of the war. Well, n not entirely. He is the only man the Constitution gives the commander-in-chief powers to. Um, and you're not going to have checks and balances on determining whether to use a mutant sea turtle or a different sort of weapon for that power is given to the commander-in-chief, and I think he should ignore the Supreme Court ruling. Whoa. We'll be right back. More with Ann Coulter and Kirsten Powers. And coming up, should Rush Limbaugh face charges for his recent Viagra confiscation? Um, I would submit to you that in this case, uh, this is one case that... Mutant sea turtles. ...is not a solution. Mm. And Mr. President, how do you propose to bring... Monster jellyfish. ...under a system of law? Yeah, I, I was going to pick up the phone and say, Mr. Secretary, I got an interesting question. This is what delegation... I don't mean to be dodging the question, although it's kind of convenient in this case, but never... <laughs> I really will. I, I'm going to call the secretary and say, you brought up a very valid question and what are we doing about it is that's how I work I'm uh, um, thanks <laughs> yourself I'm your host Norm Sherman there's some weird people out there I know I'm preaching to the choir but still some people reinvent the word and we like to tell you about them in a little segment called Drabble News. From the NationalPost.com, a Utah teenager was recently arrested for wrapping his order at a McDonald's drive-thru. Come on, Utah. Really? Really? The teenager, Spencer DeWalder, attempted to Yo, 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 the name is Fitty Spence, son. You better recognize. Yo! Uh, the teenager, Fitty Spence, attempted to set his fast food order in the high art medium of spoken word poetry, set to heavily syncopated hardcore gangster-ass grooves, of course, and was told to order like a normal person or leave. Yo, they be trippin', son. This against my first commandment rights, motherfucker. Yo, yo, yo. During the ponderous two-hour trial on Tuesday, attorneys presented evidence including surveillance footage at the restaurant, cell phone recordings of the rap, testimony from the officer who cited them, and from McDonald's employees. The restaurant manager told police that as the teens drove away that night, DeWalder yelled to her, Fine, I hate this expletive McDonald's anyways. Yo, hold up, say what? A Jetson, your honor. I never called it a Mexican McDonald's. Prosecutors claimed that the teenager acted in an angry, threatening, tumultuous manner and sped recklessly out of the parking lot. DeWalder, however, denied using profanity. Nah, I use T-Mobile, your llama, before finally taking the stand. The court will now hear from the defendant, Mr. Spencer Fitty Spence DeWalder. Mr. DeWalder, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you, Knight Rider? Yeah, I swear to tell the truth, I got nothing to hide. Your Honor, I've been denied my basic constipational right to freedom of speech, Big Mac with cheese, and a diet sprite. Cheese like me can't help themselves from busting rhymes. I want some fries, Order. 
Order in the court. Mr. Dewaller. Yo, that's my slave name. Ugh, Mr. Fitty Spence. Would you please refrain from obscene language in the courtroom and just state your defense in an everyday speaking fashion? Aight, aight. Yo, for real, I feel ya. So yeah, as I was saying, know what I'm saying? Yo, Arby's wasn't open and Checkers was closed, so shit was whack right off the bat and there was nowhere else to go with the exception of Chipotle. I'd be down with those fajitas, but repeatedly eating that makes me down with diarrhea. Then my homeboy Jeff was like, let's just get some nuggets. And despite my better judgment, I said, whatever, fuck it. We pulled into the drive through with my station wagon thump and told the shawty on the intercom, yo, I wanna order something. Order. Order in the court. Yo, for real? Aye, Dan. Y'all got nuggets? Yeah, yeah. The results of the trial? Spencer DeWalder was found not guilty of disorderly conduct after the judge ruled that singing or rapping for a fast food order is speech protected by both federal and Utah constipations. You show em, Utah. Yeah, boy. Yo, yo, Utah, where you at? The Beehive State, shouty? Mojave Desert, ranches, shale, Brigham Young, son, yo, come on! Navajo, Navajo, Latter-day Saints, chilling with your homies and your wives in the Salt Lakes, sipping Cavassier every day, except for Sunday, cause that would violate statewide mandates. Red State, regulate them bitches till they ice skate. You think you hard, bitch? Let me see your license plate. These ballers from Nevada in the Impalas, they ain't got nothing but a couple of dollars and popped collars, holla. We got strippers. We got Danny Osmond. We don't pay income tax. You got my attention. We heard you got bailout money from President Obama. How else can I afford them lap dances from your mama? East side, west side, men at night drive by polygamous bloods, grips, Utah where the party is. East side, west side, men at night drive by polygamous bloods, grips, Utah where the party is. East side, west side, men at night drive by polygamous bloods, grips, Utah where the party is. East side, west Quartetti for sending this in. This is a special Drabble News here, people. It combines all the perfect elements that make good Drabble News. Science run amok, Mother Nature going apeshit with natural selection, cool bugs, badass parasites, and zombies. From Fort Worth, Texas. Researchers in Texas are trying an unusual approach to combat fire ants by deploying parasitic flies that turn the pesky and economically costly insects into zombies whose heads fall off. The researchers are trying a tiny forward fly, a native to a region of South America where the fire ants originated. Fire ants in their home region are kept under control by as many as 23 forward species. The way it works. The flies lay eggs inside the fire ants, and then the eggs hatch into maggots, and the maggots eat away at the pest's tiny brain. Very disturbing. 
We go now to beloved patriarch, renowned obstetrician, and Drabble News chief field correspondent, Cliff Huxtable. Dr. Huxtable, why exactly are these fire ants a threat? Well, you see, you know, ants get together, you see, and they bite the baby cows and the people and the rude and they cost the Texas economy a billion dollars, you see. And it itches, you see, and I'm doing the thing that you do when you scratch and then you sub a flea fly yeah, I, I, okay, I, I think I see what you're saying. So these forward fly larvae, they just go right after the ant's brain and dig right in. Well, you see, what you gotta do, Theo, is if you're a maggot, you gotta go eat the brain like a pudding pop. And then the ant just starts wandering around like a zombie until its head falls off and the new baby fly emerges, you see. Oh, oh, I, I think I do see. That's truly horrible and awesome. Thank you, Dr. Huxtable. Oh, it's no problem, Theo. You're a good boy. <clears throat> Four forward species have already been introduced in the state since 1999. They don't attack native ants or other species and have been introduced in other Gulf Coast states before. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, right. Clearly, this will somehow wind up ending the entire human race. And you heard it here first, people, on Drabble News. There's really no way of knowing. Maybe you'll become a millionaire. Or maybe you'll lose a million dollars. suitcase, douchebag. Who knows? But maybe there is a way to beat the odds, even though we can't tell the future. We bring you Drabble News. Yes. Taylor, Michigan. A Michigan man has recently won the World Rock Paper Scissors Championship in Toronto. Tim Conrad clinched the title after five hours of play and nine matches at the Steam Whistle Brewery on Saturday night. Okay, so at least they had booze. Facing off against his best friend in the first All-American final in championship history, Conrad beat Tom Butkin with paper covering rock. It's over. When I say it is over! Organizers say Conrad dressed up as Captain America during the competition to honor his home country. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Conrad takes $7,000 home in prize money. The championship was organized by the World Rock Paper Scissors Society. That's right, folks. There's a World Rock Paper Scissors Society. Of course, I had to look into this. The Paper Scissors Stone Club was founded in London, England in 1842, immediately following the issuance of an 1842 law declaring any decision reached by the use of the process known as Paper Scissors Stone between two gentlemen acting in good faith shall constitute a binding contract. Agreements reached in this manner are subject to all relevant contract and tort law. The law was seen as a slap in the face to the growing number of enthusiasts who played it strictly as a recreational activity, since for many constables it was taken to mean that the game could no longer be played simply for sport. The club was founded and officially registered to provide an environment free from the long arm of the law where enthusiasts could come together and play for honor. <laughs> if you think this is a joke or a hoax, people, go to www.wprs.com and snoop around for yourself. The place reeks of authentic dorkdom. They have extensive forums, a series of graded online training videos, tons of blogs and articles, and even an official rock-paper-scissors strategy guide. This is from their website. 
Contrary to what you might think, Rock, Paper, Scissors is not simply a game of luck or chance. While it is true that from a mathematical perspective, the optimum strategy is to play randomly, humans, try as they might, are terrible at trying to be random. In fact, often humans in trying to approximate randomness become quite predictable. So, knowing that there is always something motivating your opponent's actions, there are a couple of tricks and techniques that you can use to tip the balance in your favor. So, for all you drabble folk at home, here are a few tactics for you to use next time you want to swindle the knickers right out from under some bloke and have it stand up in court. Here are some tips on how to beat other people as sad and annoying as yourself wanting to play rock-paper-scissors competitively. Rule number one. Rock is for rookies. In RPS circles, a common mantra is, Rock is for rookies, because males have a tendency to lead with rock on their opening throw. It has a lot to do with the idea that rock is perceived as strong and forceful, so guys tend to fall back on it. Go Green Bay Packers! This tactic is best done in pedestrian matches against someone who doesn't play that much and generally won't work in tournament play. The second step in the Rock is for Rookies line of thinking is to play scissors as your opening move against a more experienced player. Since you know they won't come out with Rock, it's too obvious, duh, scissors is your obvious safe move to win against paper or stalemate itself. One, two, three, go! Scissors. Ah, I see you are a student of Master Zensu as well. And rule number three. When all else fails, go with paper. Haven't a clue what to throw next? Then go with paper. Why? Statistically, in competition play, it's been observed that scissors is thrown the least often. Specifically, it gets delivered 29.6% of the time, so it slightly under-indexes against the expected average of 33.33% by 3.73%. Wow, there you go. People, I'm amazed here. Rock, paper, scissors, or some variation has been going on since the ancient times, and apparently it's still going on strong, even evolving and keeping up to date with modern gaming technology, I hear. I just came across this promo for an RPG game that I'd never even heard about. A generation has passed since their tenuous alliance, and a dark wind once again stirs over the plains. The web-footed shamans of Kazalal awake to dreams of smoke and ash. In trembling voices, they whisper to their chieftains. The drums of war thunder once again. Three mighty forces. There's a 33.33% chance that victory will be ours. But only one is fated to rule. Look inside yourself, my lord. Let your heart guide the way. In a world of darkness, some fight for honor. One, two, three, go. Scissors. And others fight for power. One, One two, two, three, go. go. Oh. Paper. Paper covers rock. I win. That's my cricket set now. You're contractually bound. Blizzard Entertainment proudly invites you to experience the adventure. Oh, come on, Stan. You said best out of five, not best out of three. The intrigue. We have always chosen rock. It is the way of our kind. What the halfling speaks is heresy. The danger. <laughs> not paper. Anything but paper. 
voted PC Gamers RPG of the Year 2009. Rock, paper, scissors, the shadows of Zagar. Let your heart guide the way. RPS, the RPG. The fate of the world is in your hands. This week's aliens lay the smack down on your pansy ass, and then they eat your face. Oh, speaking of which, Drabble News. Check this. If you stop and think about it, what with all the issues and predicaments and problems out there in the world today, it's easy to become grumpy, pessimistic, disheartened and bitter, jaded, morose, and malcontented. The more you think about the maladies of the world today, the more they begin to weigh on you and pull you down, making you a hopeless cynic, a nattering negativist, a little candy-ass bitch. That's right, a little candy-ass bitch. Snap out of it, pansy. Stop focusing on the world today and get you some scope. This planet has been around for billions of years. Vicious, rugged, brutal, and terrifying years. Humanity totally lucked out. We managed to get our little slice of this timeshare smack in the middle of vacation season. Think about it. The real estate sucked big time before we rolled into town. Nothing but radioactive rock, molten lava, glacial ice, huge big-ass things that would have been hunting us or squishing us. I mean, never in our entire history have there been fewer things trying to eat us than today. I think that's an important fact that a lot of us take for granted, you know? And so, to remind us, from ScienceDaily.com. Paleontologists have discovered a new species of large prehistoric crocodile, the Sarajanisuchus impromseru, unearthed in Colombia, along with the remains of the enormous monster snake that apparently killed and ate it. A monster snake? We're debating healthcare reform. We can't seem to agree on a practical approach. A little busy. Monster snake. The Titana boa, and that is its real name, was a gigantic boa constrictor that lived 70 million years ago around where the Amazon is. It's the largest known snake to have ever slithered the earth. It was upwards of 45 feet long and weighed around one and a half tons, says paleontologist Jason Head of the University of Toronto. If a man were to stand next to the snake, he continues, the man would find the snake's back coming up all the way to his hip. Then the man would stop bitching about the parking ticket he can see on his windshield and run like hell. Fossil remains of the two reptiles were found side by side, and researchers say that it's likely that the large ancient crocodiles were regular prey to the snake. And by large ancient crocodiles, I mean C. Improcero specifically. There's actually another type of prehistoric croc that <laughs> wouldn't be having none of that from Mr. Titanoboa. Enter the Dinosuchus, whose name in Greek means terrible crocodile. Dinosuchus grew upwards of 40 feet in length and weighed in at around 8 to 10 tons. This thing's skull alone was the size of a man complaining about high gas prices. Of the massive croc's diet, paleontologist Edwin H. Colbert says, Certainly Dinosuchus hunted and devoured dinosaurs with which it was contemporaneous. It was an opportunistic apex predator, possibly unmatched. How badass is that? Isn't it staggering to think that these things used to live on our planet? It's like finding out that Bruce Campbell used to sublet your apartment back in the 80s. Listen, 
I know credit card interest rates are absurd right now. I know content and copyright regulation is getting a little out of hand. I know we've got some issues with illegal immigration. I know the arts keep getting cut from schools and American cars aren't selling well and bed bug outbreaks are picking up and divorce rates are higher than ever and Native Americans are taking back South Dakota. I know Jar Jar Binks ruined Star Wars and Sofia Coppola ruined The Godfather and Glenn Beck is annoying and Tiger Woods is a sex addict and Lady Gaga's a hermaphrodite. That's a statement, not a fact. But I also know that the Amazon empties out into the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and that's... That's where the Megalodon, a 70-foot-long, 100-ton, hyper-carnivorous prehistoric shark, might have fossils turn up sometime. Oh, it's five-foot-wide jaws overlapping a numerous amount of well-preserved dinocycus ribs that, while fragmented, still appear to almost curve parenthetically around several more unidentifiable skeletal remains, which are, of course, later recognized as the spinal vertebrae of a large titanoboa. All of them, except for one lone phalange. Which, amazingly enough, turns out to belong to a new species of large prehistoric crocodile that apparently had it a whole hell of a lot worse than any of us do. And that's the news. And our independent panel of Nigerian judges will have a winner picked out by our next trifecta special. So get writing, weirdos. Make Nigeria proud. All right, next order of business. What you guys do for Dead Duck Day? Check this. Dead Duck Day? You ask. Tell me more. Well, Dead Duck Day is an annual event celebrated at the Natural History Museum of Rotterdam in the Netherlands, celebrating the anniversary of the first known observation of homosexual necrophilia in the Mallard Duck. Wow. You gotta love the Netherlands, huh? This is a place that's totally at peace with its absurdity, that wears its strangeness like a badge on its chest. They could have come up with a fake, feel-good, historic name like everybody else, but instead they're just like, eh, screw it, let's just call ourselves the Netherlands. They don't have skeletons in the closets there. Hell, they don't even have closets. I mean, what's the point? They don't even wear clothes. No need. They don't even have skin. No, just a bunch of skeletons running free in the open. Anyways, back to gay rapist ducks. From the classic Ig Nobel Prize award-winning article, here's how it went down. On June 5th, 1995, an adult male mallard collided with the glass facade of the Natural History Museum of Rotterdam and died. After which, another Drake Mallard raped the corpse almost continuously for 75 minutes. The author of the article then disturbed the scene and secured the dead duck. Dissection showed that the rape victim was indeed of the male sex, and it was concluded that the Mallards were engaged in an aerial chase, or attempted rape flight, when the victim flew into the window of the museum in full flight. The drake that pursued it managed to prevent a collision, immediately landing next to the dead duck. And what followed was the first described case ever of homosexual necrophilia of a mallard. Looking into this further, I found that this pursuit behavior is actually not that uncommon with ducks. Or at least with Dutch ducks. Schloof, bubbly in mid-March, when ducks congregate in small flocks, more than a dozen mallards may chase a single female in the air, trying to force her down and rape her. 
And apparently, non-consensual copulation between male ducks is not that uncommon either, nor are instances of necrophilia. Hey, well, ducks will be ducks, the average Dutch duck researcher might say. But never before has a gay duck raped the corpse of another male duck. Now that's cause for celebration. At least according to Keyes Moleker, who won the Ig Nobel back in 2003 for his paper. Since then, he's commemorated the sacrifice made by the poor duck in question with what is variously described as both a memorial service and a reenactment, which he invites everyone to attend and participate in. My name is Kees Moeliker. I'm curator at the Natural History Museum in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. I'll show you the duck's uh, testicles and penis. Well, let me see. Oh, here, that's my office. Yeah. There, the window that's open. Yeah. So I, um, yeah, it was here. Yeah, about here. Two meters. Yeah. Here was the, uh, yeah. crime, the crime scene. Yeah. yeah. So I, I picked up the duck, it was dead, so no problem. And the, the other duck left, but didn't fly away. He didn't, he didn't want to move. Yeah. Have you seen the rapist later? No, no, no trace of it. The live duck mounted the dead duck that's necrophilia. I looked carefully and I saw both ducks were of the male sex. I said, hey, that's homosexual. Homosexual necrophilia. I thought this was something new, so I paid close attention to it. I went down to get my camera. Do you think that the duck, when he was raping the dead duck, knew he was doing sex with a male duck. I'll show you the duck's uh, testicles and penis. Well, homosexuality in, in, in nature is, is very common, as it is in humans. So there is, there is um, um, like in mallet ducks, there is one in 10, one in 20 has homosexual relation or has homosexual beha behavior. Left and right testicle. But, you know, the homosexual copulations, they're quite rare. They're not, they're not observed that much. The yeah. penis. It's shrunk because of the alcohol. And that's the news. That was part one of our two-part Drabble News Ducks Are Bastards special. You think you know ducks, but you have no idea. Just wait. For now, though, it's Drabble Time, fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Strange stories aren't always found in speculative fiction markets, you know. We bring you part two of our Drabble News Ducks Are Bastards special. Check this. Horrendous violation. Unreversible trauma. Innocence lost. Science. Hey, we're all friends here, right? Let's talk duck penises. Why duck penises, you might ask? I don't know. We're all just feeling a little frisky here in the States, I guess, ever since last week's World Cup game when England actually tied our crappy-ass soccer team one-to-one. -one. You come from here, I come from there. We're more alike than anybody could ever tell. 
What is the currency used in the United Kingdom? <laughs> What's the currency in the United Kingdom? What is it? In the United Kingdom, I don't know. Possibly American money. Queen Elizabeth money. Yeah, who is Tony Blair? I don't even know. Okay. All right, any guess? Any guess? Skater? Tony Blair is an actor. Linda Blair's brother? And, of course, because duck penises are a wonderful example of the strange things that happen when sexual conflict shapes the evolution of animal bodies. From discovermagazine.com. Researchers from the Yale University Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology are trying to encourage male Muscovy ducks to launch their ballistic penises into test tubes. And that's what she said. Normally, the duck keeps its penis inside out within a sack in its body. When the time for mating arrives, the penis explodes outwards to a fully erect 20 centimeters, around a quarter of the animal's total body length. The whole process takes just a third of a second, and researchers hope to capture it all on high-speed camera. So why might ducks need freaky exploding ballistic weenies, you ask? Well, while male and female ducks usually form bonds that last for a whole mating season, as we learned last week, rival males often violently force themselves onto females. Duck rape. To gain the edge in these conflicts, drakes have evolved large corkscrew phalluses lined with ridges and backward-pointing spines, which allow them to deposit their sperm further into a female than their rivals. These extreme penises are even more unusual when you consider that 97% of bird species lack any penis whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, you think that's crazy. You've only heard half the story, man. Get this. The cha-chas of female ducks have actually developed highly specialized countermeasures. Their vaginas are equally long and twisting, lined with dead-end pockets and spirals that curve in the opposite direction. Their organic chastity belts evolved to limit the effectiveness of duck rapists with lengthy genitals. Two years ago, Dr. Patricia Brennan from Yale showed that duck species whose males have the longest penises tend to have females with the most elaborate vaginas. Now she's found further evidence that these complex genitals are the result of a long-lasting war of the sexes. Wow. So opposing spines and the corkscrew shape of the female duck's vagina are actually physical barriers that prevent the male from launching forth his ballistic penis to its fullest extent. Ducks really are a contradiction, huh? Talk about playing hard to get. Oh, come on, I bought you the freaking lobster. No, 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 all right, all right, jeez. But hey, don't worry too much, all you pie quacka alphas out there. Don't throw away your hope slash duck roofies yet. Researchers have found that not all male ducks are equally quack blocked. Those that the female duck actually wants to mate with have an easier time. If the female duck is into a male, she strikes a pose that signals her receptiveness, and she's able to contract the walls of her genital tract. Males who try to force themselves upon her receive no such help and have to cope with vigorous struggling. What did you bring me? Brought you a hamburger? <gasps> I love hamburgers. I'm uh, gonna go get on my swimsuit. Is that okay? <laughs> 
So how do you like the backyard? Oh, pretty good. Good, good. How are you? Nice to see you. Why don't you have a seat right over there on the other side, please? The female may not be able to resist such advances, but her convoluted vagina gives her ultimate control over where the sperm of her current partner ends up. The fact that only 3% of duck offspring are born of forced matings suggests that females are indeed winning the battle of the sexes. You go, girl. So, ducks may be bastards, but there is a happy ending to this tale after all. Corkscrew vagina beats ballistic penis. You know, it's interesting to think. I wonder if some form of duck morality is becoming an adaptive trait in these ducks. Does this mean that only the more gentlemanly ducks will be able to create offspring, passing on to the next generation their good character and fidelity? So my apologies to uh, my wife, Regina. Uh, she has been horribly uh, hurt uh, by my behavior. In ducks is evolution slash natural selection weeding out their sexual deviance. I'm innocent. I didn't force her to do anything against her will. But I thought curbing that kind of behavior was religion's job. I didn't want them to see him in that prison uniform in front of everybody. I admitted that I've had uh, 15 to 20 minutes relationship with Jessica Hunt. Or the law and people who make the law. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. This is all backwards. I mean, the strongest get the babes, right? No, better be watching her eat me. The wealthiest. Hey, it's, uh, it's Tiger. I need you to do me a huge favor. Take your name off your phone. My wife went through my phone. The most powerful. Not the most respectful and well-mannered. This ain't survival of the fittest anymore, it's survival of the considerate. And I'll tell you what else it is. A damn good explanation for homosexual necrophilia in the adult male mallard. Pickens are slim and being a mallard sex offender ain't what it used to be. And that's the news. street is that the Hubble Space Telescope is getting a makeover. You hear about this? Well, you're about to. In a little segment we call Drabble News. Check this. Thanks to listener Adam for shooting this our way. From space.com. Now after 19 years orbiting hundreds of miles above Earth's surface, the Hubble Space Telescope is getting its fifth and final makeover, with a slate of new instruments and repairs scheduled that will restore and expand some of the iconic telescope's capabilities. The astronaut crew that will give Hubble its tune-up will launch aboard the Space Shuttle Atlantis on May 11th for an 11-day mission. The excitement over the mission and Hubble's capabilities afterwards is palpable among NASA scientists. Oh, if we're successful, we will be more powerful and robust than ever before, and will continue to enable world-class science for at least another five years," said Ed Weiler, Associate Administrator of NASA's Science Mission Directorate in Washington, D.C. So what's getting tricked out on Hubble anyways? Well, for one, its Space Imaging Spectrograph Telescope is getting updated, and its Advanced Camera for Surveys, the ACS, which has been hobbled in recent years. But that's not all. <laughs> oh no. That would have been fine back in the day, but we're the MTV generation, baby. We're going full stop on that mother, yo. All out. America can't have no shabby satellite floating round up there. Especially since competition is still so tight in the space race with Russia. What? You didn't know that was still going on? 
You thought that junk was finished, son? Oh, hell no. That mess is just getting started. Yo, Russia, it's me, your arch nemesis. We the G's overseas with Mickey D stains on our T's. With luxuries like you wouldn't believe. We got more ringtones on our iPhones than China's got Chinese. We're America, biatch, the land of the free. We gave you Michael Bolton and Jurassic Park 3. Our soccer teams suck and our beers taste like pee-pee. But our rhymes are so fat they get type 2 diabetes. But enough about us. How come you ain't been calling me? I guess you're trying to stabilize your volatile economy. Preoccupied nationwide with new domestic policy psych yeah right i know you trying to follow me you've been disgraced in the space race trying to save face after coming in second place just enough to taste victory chase history ace kennedy but you lost pace with your enemy and now you're laying low plotting for as long as we known you you try to hold your head up like neil armstrong didn't pwn you that secret space ride that you're trying to hide isn't something i would publicize with any pride i'll tell you why we be pimping the hubble tonight put them 20 inch rims on spinning round Right, got the chrome on the dubs, got the subs dumping bass, new spectrograph camera taking pictures of space. Got tricked out subsystems bouncing hydraulics. Don't need any of it. It's purely symbolic. Step up your product. You gotta get on it, cause we be ballin' with the telescope that rules even harder than Lenin or Stalin. Don't fight us, our shit is tightest. The satellite is always packed with cuties and booties that are delighted. Screaming, we are so excited. You got that right, cause you in orbit on a craft that's unrivaled. What you got, Russia? What you been launching? Lately, some hoopty ass Sputnik looking thing, second rate, like your older sister Debbie, who I took on a date to the Golden Corral. When the bill came, I made her pay. Oh, silly me, I left my wallet in my cabriolet. I ordered steak, hope that's okay. Now go away, cause you look like Kathy Bates on a bad day. Blase, even put your satellite to shame. Had enough, I can mix it up again. I can flip it, I can rip it any way you want, motherland. You can't cope, cause our telescope's so dope. You know there's no hope, and of the rope, end of the show, go home, thanks for playing Russia, here's some stories for the road, and don't forget your coat when you go, cause it's so damn cold back home, all that snow, like 23 degrees below, here we go. We be pimping the Hubble tonight, put them 20 inch rims on, spinning round right, got the chrome on the doves, got the subs, thumping bass, new spectrograph camera, taking pictures of space, got tricked out, subsystems, bouncing hydraulics, don't need any of it, it's purely symbolic, step up your product, you gotta get on it, we be bottom with a telescope that rules even harder than Lenin or Stalin. We be pimping the Hubble tonight. Put them 20 inch rims on, spinning round right. Got the chrome on the doves, got the subs, dumping bass. New spectrograph camera taking pictures of space. Got tricked out subsystems, bouncing hydraulics. Don't need any of it. It's purely symbolic. Step up your product. You gotta get on it, cause we be bottom with a telescope that rules even harder than Lenin or Stalin. USSR, where you at? Great show for you folks this week, but first, a little Drabble news. Check this. Special thanks to Groom Porter for posting this in our discussion forums. From gizmodo.com. Last week, a New York Modern Museum of Art curator was forced to pull the plug on an art installation called Victimless Leather. Panis. It's a penis, right? Black and white photographs of the male penis. My tax dollars probably paying for every one of them. The public patronage of profane pornographic pictures of people's prominently perpendicular pointing penises. Somebody get me a page, boy. I'm right the governor. Oh, hey now, backwater. Hold your horses. Victimless leather's not just some 
Naughty, X-rated, profound and inspirational, hot, sexy, galvanizing and defiant, dirty and erotic, evocative and groundbreaking, profane and perverted, raw and liberating, mamby, pamby, artsy, fartsy, radical and visionary, smutty piece of pretentious garbage, deep countercultural manifesto, godless communist propaganda, first amendment right to freedom of speech, sandful hippies, inbred creationists, northern aggressors, dumb redneck pieces of... N Northern aggressor? Did you just... You did not just go there. I'm gonna whoop your ass. Bring it on! Oh my... <coughs> All right, all right, everybody settle down. Victimless leather is not some collection of body BDSM photos of the male penis, okay? Whew. It's a miniature jacket. Living and made up of embryonic stem cells. From a rat. Seated together in a specially designed techno-scientific perfusion system on artistic display and continuously fed through a series of plastic nutrient tubes. Uh, explicit, sleazy, um, <clears throat> stirring and transcendent, wild and homoerotic, um, chromatically futurambulatorismic, and also transimagnatorically, um, Umbilical Louvre Van Gogh Emancipatorian um, Nihilistic Clem in its very essence, man. I'm telling you, the nouns and adjectives never end. Miniature, living, growing, rat, stem cell, jacket, shaped, modern art, installation. Yeah, I mean, at some point, you just get tired of talking. And that's what happened to curator Paolo Antonelli, when after five weeks, the art piece grew too large for its containment flask and had to be euthanized. Yes, it was growing far faster than we expected, says Antonelli, who authorized the hurried decision to cut the coat off from nutrition last week. The containment cell could no longer hold it, and the installation became an immediate concern for the museum. The jacket's artists, or scientists, designers, whatever, Orrin Katz and Ionat Zur were out of the country, and the curator was forced to make an executive decision. A decision which, quote, still haunts him, Antonelli says, going on to say, Yes, I've always been pro-choice, and all of a sudden here I am not sleeping at night because I killed a coat. <laughs> yes. That awkward silence representing the authentic awkward silence that followed Mr. Antonelli's authentic, he really did say that, statement. Instantly, the MoMA curator was attacked by constituents from the right, the obvious pro-gnome community. Mr. Antonelli, by killing this exhibit, you leave scores of extraordinarily tiny people secretly coexisting under mushrooms and behind the walls of mankind, cold and shivering. How do you justify killing this jacket, sir? How do you sleep at night? And, of course, the pro-jacket voice from the left. Listen, the reality is that jackets and coats do a lot for this community, and they have been for a long time. People need to take a step back here and remind themselves, what if, what if, what if this jacket that I'm wearing right now, 
What if this jacket were alive, like that one was? What's it gonna do when it gets cold? Ain't gonna find no jacket, jacket people. You know, people, people don't want to worry about issues like this. They be standing in line at Old Navy during winter clearance being like, these are all 50% off, and they made of polyester, not stem cells. And besides, I'm just one person. What difference can I make? The issue has prompted response from the most tree-hugging of artsy-fartsy northern aggressors, the most liberal of which recently sponsored, wrote, and produced a new successful Broadway play about the exhibit, now sweeping the nation. Excuse me, I couldn't help noticing that strange and interesting jacket in the window. What is it? It's a postmodern threnody on the death of innocence. Why, I've never seen anything like it. No one has. Well, where did you get it? Well, you know how embryonic stem cells are pluripotent and have the capacity to self-renew themselves indefinitely? Daru. Well, I was walking through the men's apparel section at JCPenney one day. Shop Daru. And they ran into two organic biodynamics engineers. Science-y dudes. They were talking about how more things in the world should be made out of embryonic stem cells. Totally true. Dishwasher detergent, hair gel, low-calorie salad dressing. Alternative fossil fuel. They could start making jackets for all the little people living in the walls. And under mushrooms. And when the jackets get too big and become sentient, they'll get cold and you can sell them more jackets. I'll take two. It's a product that creates its own consumer demand. They could never go wrong. And if it does, we could always... Pass it off as modern art. And here it is now, in our museum. A quivering, membranous, wrinkle-free, dry-clean-only miniature jacket made entirely of embryonic stem cells. Let it speak to your soul. Well, I'm going to notify the papers right away. Sudden changes surround me. Lady Luck came and found me. My sweet little jacket connected to nutrient tubes. Thanks to you, my sweet Parker. Admission price has been marked up. I'm moving up in the MoMA. And when I'm the owner, I'll remember I owe it to you. Aw, Jacket. Who cares if I've been a little on the anemic side these past few weeks? So what if I've had a few dizzy spells, some lightheadedness? It's been worth it, old pal. Look, I'm gonna go down to Smendrick and get something to eat, okay? Feed me, Paolo! Beg your pardon? Feed me! You, you can talk. I'm starving, Paolo! Feed me! Uh, look, Jacket, I don't have much blood left to give. Give me a few more days to heal, and then we'll try the other hand, okay? Feed me now, Paolo. Uh, okay, look, Jacket, I'll run down to the deli and pick you up some nice chopped sirloin. Must be a blood. Jacket, that's disgusting. Must be fresh. I don't want to hear this. Feed me. Does it have to be human? Feed me. Does it have to be mine? Feed me. Where am I supposed to get it? Feed me, Paolo. Feed me all night long. That's right, boy. You can do it. But, but, but wait a second, Jacket. Where am I supposed to find someone? I can't just put up an ad on Craigslist. Wanted. Volunteer human sacrifice. Oh, it's easy, Paolo. You're in an art gallery. Just look around you. Remember, there's an inherent beauty in soup cans that Michelangelo could not have imagined existed. The guy sure looks like cold food to me. The guy sure looks like cold food to me. The guy sure looks like cold food to me. Now go and get him. 
When I was younger, just an awkward little kid, my mama noticed silly things that I did. I painted nipples on my younger brother's knees, filled up the bathtub with Vaseline and blue cheese. I'd swallow goldfish and defecate in the shed. That's when my mama said, What did she say? She said, my boy, I think someday you'll find a way to make your natural tendencies pay. You'll be an artist. You have a talent for senseless dementia. Son, be an artist. People will pay you to paint on placentas. Your temperament's wrong for the priesthood. The Marines would never let you wear that dress. Son, be an artist. You'll be a success. Little shirt, little shirt of stem cells. Pop, shape, pop. Gonna be our death nails, modern art. Don't mess with biochemicals, no. I'd like to get free now. Clawing and screaming, it won't let me go. Violently thrashing, I trip over my sneakers. Hit my head on a bookshelf, sweet, sweet merciful death. But suddenly, stem cells. 